Hey podcast uh, family, uh, so good to see you again uh, this morning uh, and particularly excited to be with you this morning as we start uh, our new series in 1 John. Uh, 1 John is uh, quite possibly one of my favorite uh, books of the Bible, certainly of the, of the New Testament and I can't wait to spend the next few weeks in it with you as we see everything God has to show us and speak to us. I think you're going to find uh, this series really encouraging and helpful and challenging. Uh, John speaks with such authority and clarity into so much <clears throat> of our lives and in church life and the world in which we're living. And I think uh, I, I, can't, I can't wait. I'm so excited to, to dive into this book together. So once you grab a Bible or a phone, uh, open it up, uh, head to the beginning of 1 John. We're going to start in the beginning. We're just going to do the first four verses today. And before uh, I preach on it, I, we're going to ask Zama uh, to read God's word for us. So I'm going to hand over to her now. Hello, Parkhurst. My name is Zama, and I'll be reading from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Thanks so much, uh, Zama. It's good when we start um, a new book, whenever we start a book, is to just have a look at um, who wrote it, what's going on, and uh, some of those kinds of things. And so this is a, this is a slightly different a New Testament a letter because the author isn't uh, explicitly named, like in Paul's letters, you'll often say, it's I, Paul, and I'm writing to you. Uh, in, in John's letters, uh, the addressing of the letter in 2nd and 3rd is a bit clearer. But in 1st John, it's very, very different. There's no one really claiming authorship, and it's not immediately clear who it's written to. But um, we know uh, from early church history and from uh, the style of 1 John mapping it up with the style and the language of the Gospel of John and also Revelation, that this is uh, John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, the disciple uh, of Jesus. Uh, we, we know that church history attests to that. There was no doubt in the early church that this letter was written by John. And so I want us to start by having a bit of a closer look at, uh, at who John was. Uh, because whenever anyone writes uh, authoritatively on a topic or on a person or, you know, trust to instruct it, it's helpful to know, do they actually know what they're talking about? What authority do they have to speak into this, to, to declare things, to instruct, to command, to urge? Um, and so I want us to have a look a little bit at, at John. Obviously, John was a disciple, becomes an apostle. And uh, the scripture tells us that he's the one that Jesus loved. He was the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus loved maybe the most. And um, you know, I don't think God has uh, favorites, really. Uh, it's a bit of a weird phrase, but I think, you know, you also just get along with people. Maybe human Jesus just 
really connected with, with John, had a particular affection for him. I don't think anything was weird about it. He's just a beloved disciple. He loved John. John loved Jesus. John was an eyewitness to everything. This is super important. All this stuff is super important as he builds his case. He was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. Up close, close contact. In, in, in pandemic language, he would be, he would be a close contact. We're learning all these new terms. So he would be a close contact on the contact tracing list. He, he spent three years with Jesus, everything, going around, seeing it, living together, following in the master's uh, footsteps. This is John. But I want, I want us to look a bit at John's heart because uh, that's particularly important when you get to the letter of one John and it shapes a lot of the feel of it. And when you read one John and, and, and second John and third John, we're only going to work through first John, second and third John, you can read uh, in a couple of minutes. They're important books, but they're not the length of one John. And we're just going to camp in one John. But when you read these three letters together, you, you see some of John's heart. Uh, he's got the heart of a pastor. He's got the heart of, of a shepherd who, who loves people and who loves God's people. Um, and, and he writes in this fatherly tone, this almost, almost grandfatherly tone. He often refers to them as my children. You'll see that again and again as we go through 1 John. He calls them children, my little children, my dear children, the children, children, children. He, he's writing with that grandfatherly feel and authority. He's an old man. Now when he writes 1 John, We'll go through a little bit of his life, but he's, he's writing with a, with a heart and a tone that's so warm. And that's one of the things that when you read one, John, just, it's just stands out and it makes it, makes it such a compelling book because it comes with some very strong truths, but it's wrapped up in this gracious, gentle, warm language and character of, of John. But it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always the case with John. And I want to, as we start, walk back a little bit and have a look at a couple of, incidents from John's life because he wasn't always this man. Jesus comes up to him uh, and his brother uh, James fishing with their father Zebedee, a family fishing business and calls John to follow him. And we read in the other gospel accounts, they drop their nets and they follow him. John is like a, he's a man of action. Uh, I, I don't know what else was happening. We're not led into all the other detail, but um, he, he makes a decision to follow Jesus and, and he doesn't look back on that. He leaves what looks like a successful fishing business and he goes drops the nets and he follows Jesus and um, you I'm just going to pick on a couple of occasions from his life if you look at Mark 3 verse 17 uh, Jesus gives them a nickname now I didn't go to um, uh, you know an all boys school uh, all boys schools really love giving each other nicknames you know like based on maybe something you've done I mean grade eight you did that was embarrassing like that's your now your nickname, you know, for the rest of your days, like guys are only ever going to refer to you as whatever it was. I'm not even going to venture any some suggestions. You know, my surname is Fell, so I never needed a nickname because it was always Doug Fell and oh, it's hilarious jokes. Like I've had those to death. I had it at the disc end the other day. Uh, the lady helping me thought she was a comedian, uh, but anyway, I'm getting distracted. Uh, Jesus gives them a nickname. James and his brother John gives them the nickname, the sons of Zebedee, Mark 3 verse 17, it says, And to James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Boanerges. We don't even know how to say that properly. And they give us an explanation. It says, that is, sons of thunder. <laughs> sons of thunder. That's Jesus' nickname for these guys, these brothers. I mean, 
you, you got to have a certain kind of temperament to get a nickname from the Son of God and have that nickname be Sons of Thunder. He's not an average garden variety kind of dude. I, I doubt that you know you ever died wondering what he was thinking. And as we see some of his other things we'll get to now, Sons of Thunder. Maybe needing a bit of work, maybe needing a few years following Jesus, having the character developed. You fast forward to Luke chapter 9, you have a look in verse 52. Jesus and his disciples are making their way around the country. They come, they're needing assistance, and they approach a Samaritan village, and they basically rejected. They turned away. Listen to the response of James and John. From verse 54, it says, When the disciples, James and John, John the author of our letter here, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? <laughs> do you want us, Lord, do you want us to call down fire? First problem. I mean, if I was Jesus, I would have said, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Please do. I'll stand and watch. They're not asking Jesus, Jesus, will you call down fire? They're saying, hey, Jesus, do you want us, your new kind of disciples, to call down fire to consume these guys? They didn't help us in the way that we wanted help. And you know what? Our suggestion is that we call down fire and obliterate them. These are the disciples that Jesus has got to work with. This is John who's written the letter that we're looking at today. Some work needed. You jump ahead to Mark chapter 10. Have a look in verse 35. James and John, they sidle up next to Jesus with an audacious request. Listen to it from verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him, speaking about Jesus, and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. We want you to do whatever we ask you. We love you and we've got a wonderful plan for your life, Jesus. Please do whatever we want. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. When you enter in the glory of your kingdom, we want to be your right and left hand man. We want the seats of honor in this new kingdom. Not a big ask at all. <laughs> you know, the, the, the arrogance and the pride. And they did this, if you keep reading the story, they did this sneakily away from the other disciples and the other disciples all get nose out of junk when they find out what the brothers are trying to do sidling up to Jesus. These are not humble men longing to be servants. These guys are gunning for the seats of glory. But fortunately things progress and three years with Jesus takes its toll and has an effect on John. And I'm just going to jump ahead here uh, because uh, at the cross you see something uh, special that I think is an indicator of something. Uh, he's the disciple that, that Jesus loved. And when you see Jesus is on the cross, if you look in John chapter 19 from 24 onwards, um, oh, I'll just read from 26. Jesus is on the cross and he looks and he sees and there's only a few people around the cross. Some, some women, some of his disciples uh, who were women and other men are gathered there. And he looks and it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, Standing there, that's John. He said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Uh, right as Jesus is about to die, he's entrusting his mother, Mary, into the care of John. Now, you don't, you know, if you're going to die, you don't entrust your, the care of your mother to some, any odd random, you know. He's trusting his mom into the care of John, this disciple uh, that he loved. And the years had obviously uh, changed John and the years continued to change uh, John. 
we read in Galatians uh, 2 verse 9, Paul talks about um, uh, Peter, James, and John becoming the pillars. They're described as they're the pillars of the church. Uh, and why am I giving you all this background? Well, partly because we want to understand who's written this letter to us. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you uh, with this. It, it will take time. But God will transform those who are his children and who are following him. I remember years ago, so I've shared this story with some of you. I was sharing my testimony uh, on a ministry team on the Cape Flats. I've been sharing some of about the story of my life and how I'd come to know how I'd come to faith in Jesus and how he had changed much of the angry and bitter heart that I had and just done an amazing, refreshing and renewing work. And a guy came up to me afterwards, old guy. I wasn't studying for ministry or anything. I was just on this team and he came up and he grabbed me by the shoulders and he looked at me and said, I won't try and do his accent, but it was just wonderful. If you know the accent on the Cape Flats, just imagine that. And he grabs me by the shoulders and he said, my son... Only God can take a disaster and turn him into a pastor. And at the moment, at that time I wasn't a pastor. I am now uh, not still the disaster completely. But I was so encouraged by what he said and, and those words stuck with me. Only God can take a disaster and turn him into a pastor. And that's sort of what you see a bit here with John. John goes from being the, you know, the fire chucking glory thief uh, almost. I mean, maybe that's a bit strong, but uh, to being the one who's described in these, in these as John the Elder. John the one who loves the church. John the beloved disciple. God can change and does change us. And he does and he is and he will continue to change you. I was so encouraged looking at this again this week, how God changes people. Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's suddenly but he's always at work transforming us. It's true. It's true what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's plan for you and I is to look more and more like Jesus. And God is relentlessly committed to making you look more like Jesus Christ. And I love how you see this happening in the life of John and now he's, he's advanced in years he's old now and he's come such a long way uh, no longer raining down fire on those who don't want to help here you you sense this tenderness and this authority of this weathered apostle and faithful friend of Jesus so what's the message of John this uh, this man this one that Jesus loved what's his message well it goes into different areas it deals with uh, um, the clarity of doctrine and ethical implications of that, how, how, how to live together as a loving community, what genuine Christian love looks like, how you can be sure of your salvation. Uh, there's a diff whole bunch of different areas, and uh, week by week we're going to range into some of those different themes, but I want us to start where he starts in the letter here in chapter 1, just with these first four verses, and I want us to look at three things that I think he goes after. And the first is... A clarified Jesus. A clarified Jesus. Um, just some context here quickly. This is the context that John is speaking into. Uh, it's, it's almost the end of the first century. The church has been around for you know, a couple of generations. And in the couple of generations of the church being around, uh, error has started to creep in. Uh, false teachers have sprung up. And they've started to teach uh, heresy and nonsense. And they've drawn people away from the church. 
and away from the faith and away from God. And guys like John are writing to combat some of those errors and some of those heresies. And one of the most notable ones um, that was around then and is still around in certain forms today is is Gnosticism. And I'm not going to go into a whole thing about Gnosticism because it has various offshoots and iterations and versions of it. But um, the the part that I want us to focus on today that bears uh, importance for the text that we're looking at here is that they didn't believe that spirit and matter could coexist. They didn't believe that spirit and matter could coexist. Why is this important? Because they had differing views of Jesus. Differing views of Jesus. Some believed that he, he didn't really come in the flesh. Uh, the Jesus that was on earth was like a, like a spiritual apparition, almost like a ghostly spirit being, not, not, a, not a fleshly Jesus, not a human uh, Jesus. And that presents uh, its own problems. There was a different view that said, well, he wasn't really God. You know, because they're holding to this premise that you can't have spirit and, 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 and flesh uh, mixing. Uh, the first is that you know, he, he's this ghostly apparition. The second that he's, he's not God. He's not God. The Jesus that we saw on earth, yeah, he's definitely a human, born of a human, and is a human being. And something special happened to him when he got baptized. The Holy Spirit descended, you know, the, like a dove on him. And from that time onwards, those three years of ministry, he did that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet then when he went to the cross, uh, the Spirit left him. Holy Spirit abandoned him. He cries out, you know, why have you forsaken me? God, you're like the Spirit leaves him and he dies as a man. He doesn't die as God, he dies as a man. He just had this window where he did that ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is, is, is a man. He's not, he's not God. He was just a Spirit-empowered uh, man. And both of those errors need addressing because they go right at the heart of what the Christian faith is all about and at the heart of what the atonement is all about. Uh, this sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the eternal one who's come to earth, uh, the eternal Jesus who's laid aside his majesty and his glory and his divinity and he's taken uh, onto himself the form of humanity and come, but he's come as God and as man uh, together. He's just laid aside some of his divine rights, but not his divinity. And he comes into the world fully human, not a quasi-human, not some ghostly apparition, a full human being. Um, and, and walks amongst us and goes to the cross to die in our place as both God and man. Both God and man. He can't be a substitute if he's not man and it's not an atoning sacrifice if he's not perfect and the only one who's perfect is God. And those things come together in the God-man Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that secures the atonement, secures our forgiveness for all eternity is that Jesus is both God and Man, and so John's trying to clarify this, and he starts there and he says, No, 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 Jesus was from the beginning. There it is in verse one Jesus was from the beginning, He is the eternal life revealed to us. He's the eternal life that's revealed to us, it's come amongst us. That's who He was. And now, as He comes amongst them, listen to those words He says, Have a look in your, in, in your Bible, it says, We've seen Him, we've touched Him. We've heard him. We've observed him. We've watched him. We've been with him. We've given him a hug. We've watched everything he's done. We've made food with him. He's made food for us. You know, we, we have 
done real life with a real Jesus. It's not some ghostly apparition. No, no, no. But he also didn't just rock up on the scene. He is, he is the one who was from the beginning. And the eternal life has now been revealed amongst us. And some of the words and some of the stuff that you'll read in 1 John and that we'll look at will remind you of the gospel of John. And listen to this from uh, John chapter 1, John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, and then verse 18. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Amazing. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is himself God and is at and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. So Jesus has come to show us what the Father is like. He's the one and only Son, and he himself is God. He has come amongst us. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why is this such a big deal? Because if Jesus is eternal God, and he has come in the flesh amongst us, everything has changed. Everything has changed. And some of you, many of you listening to this will believe this, will know this. But if, you, if you're teetering or you're undecided on this, this is the number one thing you need to figure out in life. Is this true? Did Jesus come amongst us in bodily form? And is he who he says he is, the eternal one, God himself? Because if God has walked this earth and done what he said he did and what the scriptures make clear to us, Everything in human history, everything in the world, everything in eternity has changed. And your very joy and life and eternity depends on understanding why that happened and what has happened in his coming into the world. The second thing John makes clear for us is a shared fellowship, a shared fellowship. He explains why he's sharing about uh, Jesus and why he's so strong on this. Remember, he's refuting errors. So he's trying to push back against these false teachers who come in up with all these jacked up ideas about Jesus not being God or not being man and leading people astray. And he's like, no, 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 no. He is both of those things. He's the God man. But this is why I'm telling you these things so that you can come into the fellowship with us and with the Father and the Son. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you. So that you may also have fellowship with us. I want to have fellowship with you. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's why he's writing. There's a, the start of the tenderness coming in here. He wants them to have fellowship. He wants them to be together. He has a deep, deep love for the church. He's been through the ringer. He's been persecuted. He's been sent off to the Greek Isle of Patmos. That's where we get the book of Revelation. Jesus, his old you know, friend who loves him, reveals himself to him. And it's just an amazing book. You just think about it. Like he, he's the one who reclined against Jesus. This is a bit of an aside. He reclines against Jesus' side in having dinner. And they, they, they love each other and they're friends and brothers and life together and ministry together here. Jesus ascends. And then the next time um, uh, John sees Jesus uh, is this is on the Lord's day, this apparition, this appearance of the glorified Jesus. And what does John ends up face down in the dust? It's amazing. It's, it, it, it blows my mind. Every time I think of those two things, it's like 
Jesus, the one who walked and befriended and lay, and the one who Jesus loved and who loved Jesus, the next time he sees him, it's just like in his glory. And only appropriate response is just face in the dust. Like, wow, this is an absolutely amazing revelation. But um, yeah, I'm getting distracted here. Uh, here, this his desire for them to have fellowship, fellowship with the Father and the Son. He has a deep, deep love uh, for the church and for this togetherness that the Holy Spirit brings about. And why am I raising this? Because A, it's there. And he says, oh, our desire is that we would have fellowship. We want to be together. We want to have fellowship with you. And we have fellowship with you because we first have fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's how it works as a Christian. If you, when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in all of us. And the Holy Spirit connects us to the Father and the Son and to one another. And so we are together as a body. And we are called scripturally to live out our togetherness as a church in sharing our lives together and being on mission, one another in each other. And so it's, it's out of the realm of scripture and just common sense to say that anyone would love Jesus and not love the church. And you hear people sometimes saying that, ah, I love Jesus. I've got tons of time for Jesus. I don't have time for church. I have time for Christians. But yeah, I love Jesus. I'm like, you, you can't reconcile that with Anything that you read in the scriptures, and yeah, keen on Jesus but not keen on the church, it's like, it's like I'm, I like the head but I don't like the body. It's like that's just weird. Like it's unbiblical Christianity. I want to provoke you and encourage you. If you listen to this and you're not part, an active part of a fellowship, you're you're doing it all wrong. You've got everything mixed up. It's not a biblical expression of Christianity because this is what the Holy Spirit has done: is bring you into the fellowship so that you can share in the life. Of the Father and the Son and the body through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think in this pandemic lockdown thing, so I just want to remind you, we're missing this fellowship. You know, fellowship is more than just Christians getting together and having a meal or potluck dinner or like just like weird lame games that introverts always avoid. You know, I, I don't like those games either. I love God's people and I love being together and singing and worshiping and praying and sharing our lives together. And this pandemic has shown us as it's been taken away, but just how important and life-giving it is to fellowship together. I want to encourage you and challenge you, even in this a time of the pandemic and this lockdown, what are you doing to try to preserve that fellowship? Use every means available to you uh, through technology and other things to preserve the fellowship to share our lives with one another, to encourage each other, to sow into each other's lives and to, to, yeah, to really feel uh, our togetherness. I want to encourage you to do everything that you can that's within our means to do that. Last thing is a completed joy, a completed joy. John explains, this is the first time in the book that he explains, he gives these, one of these taglines of why he's writing the book. And he says, I'm writing this so that our joy would be completed. Our joy would be complete. He's speaking about himself here. But uh, when you look at 1 John, you can see uh, in the translation here, and you may, depending on the uh, on the version of the Bible that you're using, it may either say uh, our joy or your joy, because there are both uh, options in the translation. And I think they're both appropriate in this. Um, if you think about uh, from John's perspective, he's writing this um, so that their joy would be complete, so that they would come to know uh, Jesus Christ for who he is, this glorious God-man, uh, and that they would come into this fellowship 
of the church and the fellowship of the Father and the Son and, and be counted amongst the church and be full of the Holy Spirit and full of that joy. Surely, yeah, that would bring joy. And for John to see that happen in them and amongst them, that would bring him joy. Uh, if you fast forward to 3 John uh, verse 4, it says this. This is John speaking in his own words. He says, I have no greater joy. No greater joy than what? Than what? To hear that my children are walking in truth. And to hear that my children are walking in truth. John's greatest joy. This is the heart of a pastor. This is the heart of every Christian leader. And if you're in a church like ours, you should hold us as elders accountable. Say, what is your greatest joy, Doug? Other elders, other leaders. What's our greatest joy is to know that those who God has called us to lead are walking in the truth. That you're walking in the truth. You're walking faithfully with God and full of joy. And if you're part of any church, you, any church you go to, that's what you need to look for in the leaders. That's their greatest joy. It's not amassing money or fame or having more likes or followers on social media. It's this. It's a humble posture that seeks the best of those that they're leading and longs to know that they are walking in the truth because that would be the very best thing for them. This is John's greatest joy is that his people, his children are walking in the truth. So he says, I write these things so that you would know these things and that I would have the joy of, of knowing that these things are happening in you. But also, the, conversely, that their joy would be uh, complete, that those who, who receive this uh, would, would enter into that, that joy. He, I'm writing these things so that your joy would be complete. You'd hear what I'm saying, you'd get clear on Jesus, you'd respond to him, enter into this fellowship, and that's where all the joy is listen to what John says in listen to what Jesus says in John's gospel, John chapter 15, from verse 9. Jesus is speaking, he says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things. So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Jesus is after our greatest joy. And he says, if you want the greatest joy, this is where you find it. You find the greatest joy by abiding in me, remaining in me. And you remain in me by obeying what I command. What I tell you to do, do what I tell you to do. Do what I instruct you to do. And you'll find yourself remaining in me. And as you remain in me, that is the place of greatest joy. I don't know about you, but I want to be as joy-filled as possible. I want you to be as joy-filled as possible. And Jesus, out of his own mouth, says that is his longing too. That his joy may be in us and it may be complete. Obviously, it's only going to com be complete in its fullest sense one day. But it will be there for those who remain in him. John's summary is this, that our greatest joy comes from seeing Jesus clearly for who he is and delighting in the fellowship that comes from that in being united with him and with his church. Friends, in a time where there's so much that's uncertain, so much is up in the air, so much of the ground under our feet has shifted and keeps shifting. Every time our president speaks to us, there's, there's new news. Every time, every week, uh, in your companies, in your finances, in the numbers of uh, people getting infected and dying in the economy, 
Everything is shifting, not just in our own country, but around the world. Things are uncertain. We need to bank our hearts and our hope and our joy in things that are certain. Things that are certain. And I am 100% certain. I want to remind you and encourage you today that joy is found in union and fellowship with Jesus Christ, the eternal God who became man for us to bear the weight of our sin and punishment and rise to life to give us forgiveness and freedom and life and eternity with him and purpose uh, now these are certain and sure things and our greatest joy is found in these things and so i want to pray for us today that we'd be able to press into that joy whilst everything else around us may be uncertain these things are sure and they're a rock on which we can place all of our hope again this morning let's pray together Father, where, where would we be without your astounding kindness to us in Jesus Christ? Jesus, we thank you again this morning that you were willing to empty yourself, to lay aside all the rights of your glory and your divinity and come and take a humble form of a man and suffer and die on a cross in our place for us and, and endure a wickedness from the creation that you you brought into being or because you were happy to secure our salvation as a demonstration of your grace and for uh, your glory and we are so delighted again this morning to think about these things and to remind ourselves that our deepest joy is in this thank you for bringing us into this fellowship father son spirit and the church together You've united us to one another and to yourself, and it's just mind-bending. We long to be together in person to experience more of this in reality, but until that day, uh, we've got this online stuff, and we're with each other in spirit, and we pray you'd give us creative ways to love and serve each other uh, and, and continue in this fellowship. And we pray, I pray for my friends and our church this morning, you'd fill us with joy again. We want to be like John, just overflowing with joy because we know Jesus and we know we're loved by him and we love you. And so fill us with joy again this morning, I pray for our good and for your glory. We ask it. Amen.